Welcome to Cannabis Capital, the podcast. Blunt truths about the cannabis economy with your hosts, Ross O'Brien and Maggie Kelly. All right, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Cannabis Capital, the podcast. I'm your host, Ross O'Brien, venture capitalist and author of Cannabis Capital, the book. And I'm here today, as always, with my co-host, Maggie Kelly. Maggie, say hello to the, what are we, have millions of listeners now, or, or have we reached a, a billion yet? Ten, tens of millions, Ross. Tens of tens millions. Tens of millions. Yeah. Fabulous. Well, excited for uh, a really spectacular guest we've got today, and looking forward to the conversation, as always, Maggie. Well, Ross, I'm really happy to be with, here, with you today. Listeners, we're glad you're here as well. And we are, as always, so happy to be bringing you another episode of Cannabis Capital, the podcast. Today's guest is the phenomenal Tyler Bauerline of Hyper, rock star of the cannabis economy, if you will. But before we get started, Ross, it's time for the Cannabis Economy Challenge. For new listeners, our challenge is based on our belief that cannabis is not an industry, but a global macro economy. The impact of legalization is not creating one industry, but multiple dynamic industries in their own right. So Ross, this challenge is interesting. The person who thought of it must have been really out there. And I have to say at first, I thought we've been stumped. But after noodling on it for a bit, I realized, nope, nah, not today. So Ross, are you ready? Well, I hope I don't get stumped now, Maggie, because if you solved it already, then what am I going to do? I know you can talk your way out of anything. So today's (laughs) challenge is Space exploration. Ooh. Oh, I like it. I like it. Space exploration. All right. Well, I think actually I would start with what is the purpose of space exploration, right? And a lot of exploration is funded by research. And a lot of the research that they do in space is taking things like plants up into space and studying them. And guess what cannabis is? A plant. And guess what's happening with this plant? It's now being legalized in a way that it's accessible for research. So I would imagine that we are not far off from cannabis going into space for research purposes. Would this qualify also as, or could we make a connection to drones and aerospace, something along those lines as well? Yeah, in a different way. I mean, I think drones, and and sounds like this person was definitely out there thinking about being in the stars. I mean, we've seen businesses that have drones that are being used for crop management and in ag tech, right, to go bruise crops and be able to cover large, large farming facilities, use them for security and for data and analytics. So yeah, I think there's probably technology from aerospace that's going to be translated into use in cannabis probably early on in the cultivation side. But that's all I've got out of my crystal ball today. So I'm going to stop there because I think I escaped, dodged a bullet on that one. And we've got a great interview today, too. So thanks, Maggie. Okay, and there you have it, listeners. Ross remains undefeated. If you think you can stump Ross, please visit CannabisCapitalPodcast.com. Your submission could be featured on a future episode. Now on to our interview with Tyler Berline of Hyper. Hi, my name is Tyler Berline. I'm the Chief Business Development Officer for Hyper. And my blunt truth is, I believe that the MSOs have won. And it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. 
Well, Tyler, welcome to Cannabis Capital, the podcast. We're very excited to have you with us today. Ross is especially excited. But before we get started, you gave our listeners a little bit of background on you, but can you provide a little bit more background on yourself and about Hyper specifically? Sure. So again, my name is Tyler Berline. I've been in the industry really since the beginning in Colorado. And, and Hyper was formed to enable banks and credit unions the ability to bank highly regulated industries, not just cannabis. And what I think a lot of people miss is the banking problems in this industry are as much a highly regulated industry problem as they are a cannabis problem. Uh, and there are industries outside of cannabis that have had the same, if not greater issues with banking over the years. And so I was very fortunate to be on the front lines. I was with the first bank that started banking cannabis in the state of Colorado at the beginning. And, and through those relationships, I got to know all the licensees in every state. And I got to see things from a very unique perspective. And that led into all kinds of relationships. So whether it be with bank and credit union regulator, with uh, state uh, and federal governments as they were uh, formalizing their plans to launch the markets, because people don't realize that state governments, depending on how the legislation was written, potentially have issues with banking. And so again, just been very fortunate to be on the front lines of it. And now was put on the board of MJ Biz, which is a, a really an awesome thing. Um, I've been fortunate to serve with NCIA as the, the Banking and Financial Services Committee Chairman. So again, just very lucky and, and been able to, to see this from a very unique perspective. So you mentioned your relationships in MJ Biz and the conference has just wrapped. And I think I saw on your LinkedIn, as you put it, the Super Bowl of Cannabis. So what are your takeaways from this? The excitement's never been better. And, and I, I go back to the first years of the conference and, and I wrote about this, but I remember this clearly. The only thing that anybody wanted to talk about was whether or not we were going to get raided by the feds. And people literally had like an exit plan at the convention center where they, where they had it. it. I think it was back at the Rio, maybe even before that, I forget what the first ones were, but they had an exit plan for where they were going to run. And so it's just kind of amazing to see how far it's come. The caliber of whether it be operators or investors or equipment manufacturers or all of those companies, they've really, I would say that the industry has come out of the gray and people realize that this opportunity is here to stay. The cat's out of the bag. This is our generation's prohibition and the excitement's never been greater. So really awesome to you know see that. And then obviously to, to catch up with everybody not having it last year was a, was a bummer for everyone. So uh, great so, week. So Tyler, one of the things that I enjoy talking about with you over the years is both sides of the coin. We're seeing uh, maturity in the sector. We call it the cannabis economy more than just an industry. We're seeing maturity. We're seeing maturity in founders. What's the inverse? What's the other side of that coin? What's happening on maybe the advocacy side and are there groups that are being sort of left behind as this, as, as this whole sector grows? Yeah, that's, so that's a loaded question. Thank you, Ross. <laughs> but I, I would say, you know, it, it kind of goes back to, and, and this is not, not to be political in, in any way, shape or form, but I remember, and, and this has come up multiple times with the SAFE Act, and people say, well, why aren't these things passing? You know, Biden got elected. Why hasn't this been legalized? And, and what it boils down to, and I hate to say this, but until the industry has enough lobbying power, I don't know that there's one motivation from the MSOs to really, truly go federally legal. Whether or not sure. they say that publicly is another story. They've they've essentially gotten control of the U.S. market. And so there are some driving factors to to push legalization across the finish line. But 
it remains to be seen who that really benefits at the end of the day. It always felt to me like it's sort of a fractured message, right? There's different sort of groups of people with different objectives, and there's no kind of one consolidated sort of strategy as it relates to whether it's legalization or state or state banking act, et cetera. That's exactly right. I mean, everybody's got a different take. Everybody's got a different draw or motivation. And so unfortunately, until the motivations of some of the most powerful people in the country translate into dollars and lobbying efforts, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not in the camp that thinks the legalization is coming anytime soon, but I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing either. Yeah, so let's let's double click on that because I think that's exactly it goes to your blunt truth, Tyler. Let's let's come back to this in the in the lens and the context of what's happening. And you, you seem very bullish on or or view rather that the MSOs are really in the driver's seat now. So for the listeners, let's talk about like what is an MSO and what's the alternative business model or why why are they succeeding and then what do you think that means? Yeah, so, so MSO is, is short for multi-state operator. So it just simply means that a, an operator has licenses in, in various states. And what, we, what we've seen with the MSOs is they focused on the limited license markets first. And, and by design, and, and it's a smart move, because if you look at certain states, if, if like I'll give an example, and this is not an example, and they haven't gone there yet, but the state of Utah. The state of Utah has 14 retail licenses. It has eight cultivation licenses. That's it. And you've got a medical market, but chronic pain is approved essentially. So, you know, the revenues for those operations are going to be substantial. Um, And so you've seen the MSOs strategically acquire assets all over the country, and they've got a stranglehold on certain markets. And and there is opportunity. I'm not going to say that, that there's not opportunity, but I think based on where they're at, based on the money they've raised and based on the way they've executed in the market, it's going to be very, very difficult for anybody to, to displace them at this point. In fact, I, virtually impossible. Now, I think that you're seeing the California market mature, right? And in California, I believe, is the fifth largest economy in the world. So you see the, whether it be the glass houses of the world or the Kalivas, they've kind of focused on that market and they will have to be dealt with at some point. I think by those MSOs are acquired. But for the most part, I think, and I've heard this more and more over the last few months, operators, especially in established markets that have kept ownership to themselves are now sitting back saying, okay, I've maximized what I think I can do from a revenue standpoint. I can't displace the MSOs or compete with them long-term. So it's better for me to sell and ride their stock into the future in their operational prowess and their footprint because eventually if somebody wants to come in upon federal legalization or when the capital markets open up, they're going to have to go through the MSOs. And so do you see this then being a catalyst for a really active M&A market? I do. I, I know of a couple already, but we're going to see yeah. some significant moves, I think, first quarter of this next year. Awesome. And so on the back of that then, Tyler, to go to the flip side of the coin, and you've you've seen this sector from a very unique lens, as you talked about, in particular coming through banking and, and as that was really the Wild West. What are the things that you're seeing now as a, in knowing what you know now, knowing what we know today, like with the strength of the MSOs, was that something that could have been anticipated? Was that expected? Is it sort of how is this transitioned in reality versus the opportunity that everybody has seen over the past few years? I think it's expected. And, and I think it's, it's been interesting to me to watch the MSOs, because if you look at them, there were two markets that really 
really three that I would say fueled the MSO growth. And, and if you look at the companies that started in Illinois out of the gate, so that's where GTI was born. That's where Cresco was born. If you look at Arizona, Harvest, Cureleaf took a, a, a large footprint there early. Florida, you've got Trueleaf, Parallel, some of those, those giants. So it's interesting. I, I think they had a significant advantage because their markets launched early. They understood, they understood the opportunity, they understood the li- limited license dynamic, and they, they had the prowess to go in and either win these licenses or acquire quickly because they were some of the first to go public as well. So yeah, I, I think it's, it's played out. I think the way that being on the front lines, you would anticipate it. The part that, that interests me is we saw the Canadian companies, the Canadian-based companies go out and raise an unbelievable amount of money in the capital markets, and they had access still have access to the U.S. capital markets. And, you know, I see I see CEOs talking and talking about their game plan and what they're going to do. And the irony to me is, if you think about it, there are a couple companies in Canada that have been deemed as the, the biggest, mm-hmm. right? And their plan is either coming down to the U.S. to acquire when federal legalization occurs or export or any number of, of ideas and justification for their valuations. But the problem is if federal legalization occurs and they have the ability to come in and acquire, the MSOs are already too strong in the United States and they're, they have no, no motivation to do a deal with those guys. And overnight, those U.S. operators uplist to the U.S. exchanges yeah. and take away the only advantage that those Canadian companies have had since the beginning. And almost overnight, I don't want to say they become irrelevant, but it's going to be really tough for those guys to compete. And so, you know, when I hear investors talking about opportunity and they talk about those Canadian companies and they, that's where they see the growth occurring, I just don't see it. So Tyler, we're venture investors. So we're early stage. We don't invest in public companies, but we look at the markets and I would say we echo your sentiment violently or in violent agreement in one respect in particular, which is valuation. And it seems to us that many of the companies, most of the companies that are publicly traded and even some of the private companies that are in the capital markets right now are already pricing in a future event and the future value. And as venture investors, I mean, we're looking for a significant turn on our cash investments. If you're already pricing the future upside, then there's no arbitrage to gain that value when something actually happens, right? Agreed. Totally agree. But I, but I think there's also, I, I, I feel, and I've ha- I had some conversations even last week with sophisticated investors that I don't think necessarily truly understand how the U.S. market works yet. And they're getting there, they're navigating, but I'll give an example. The Georgia market just issued six licenses. And each of those six is going to have five retail locations and a cultivation. And that's it mm. in the state of Georgia. And so I think part of it is it's hard to quantify the value on something like that mm-hmm. for some of the operators that have acquired, truly have acquired one of them. And I saw their stock get hit pretty hard over the, the following weeks. And things like that don't necessarily make sense either. Well, if we can transition to things that don't make sense, can you lead us in a little discussion here on the Safe Banking Act? It's been in the news a lot over the past couple of weeks. The House has passed it, I think it's fifth time. What are your thoughts? I, I think the industry needs to have a realistic expectation of the SAFE Act if it passes. I think it could open up lending. I think it could certainly help banks and credit unions. But the fact remains, and, and this is wholly missed by the media, 
this industry is banked. I mean, if you show me an operator right now that doesn't have a bank account transparently, I'll show you somebody that either doesn't want to pay any fees or is doing something they shouldn't be doing or they're not licensed altogether. I mean, there's literally, there are banks and credit unions fighting for the business. Um, I get calls every day. Hey, can you send me accounts? Can you introduce me to people? Can you get me in touch with this person? I mean, it's the, the landscape has dramatically changed even over the last 18 months. And many of those institutions are aggressively pursuing. And so my, my fear for the industry is, is that we're putting emphasis on something that really is just a low impact, doesn't really solve much at the end of the day to say that we got to win, which, which is great. And it, it could have some impact, but here's one of the things that, that kind of, again, I, I, I think the industry just has an out of touch take on MJ Biz did a survey to the industry of what people were most excited about a safe pass. And probably 80% of those answers were people saying, hey, if the safe act passes, we're going to be able to offer credit cards finally at dispensaries. Well, Visa and the brand of card networks are very specific about one term. It's federal legality. So they're not willing to participate in any industry until federal legality. And, and I've got a direct statement from one of the major branded networks and, and I deal with them on a regular basis. And I can tell you, it kind of goes back to that old Mike Tyson saying, like, everybody's got a plan until they get hit in the mouth. And everybody's got a plan until legal and compliance hit them in the mouth. And unfortunately, I don't believe anything's going to change from the branded card rails with SAFE. I think it's going to take federal legality for them to come in. So what do you make of Amazon putting their money where their mouth is in terms of lobbying members of Congress? What do you what do you make of that? I, I that think that's coming to the table there. In, the, uh, in regards again, to I, I think it, that goes back to the, be careful what you wish for and whether people really, truly want federal legality, despite what they may say publicly. But going back to lobbying power, unfortunately, too many times politicians care about money, power, and control, because any one of those three gives them more of the other two, right? And in this case, until they feel like they can control or profit off of this industry, or they have lobbying coming at them that's powerful enough or, or throwing enough money at it, I, ultimately that's going to be the catalyst for legalization. So uh, I think it's a slippery slope. I think that if it does go that route, it's going to significantly benefit certain operators. And I'll give an example like Glasshouse. They just acquired 5 million square feet of state-of-the-art cultivation. They understand it inside and out. And so operators that have gone down that path, which I wouldn't recommend for many, will thrive in a situation like that because they're going to need to source reliable, cheap product in indoor, I don't think can, can facilitate that. So I think Amazon's really interesting, and I'd continue down that path for a moment because I think it leads back to this conversation of advocacy acumen versus business acumen, right? And we always say in our shop, we invest in business acumen, not advocacy acumen, but we want to understand and we know that government can be a market maker. Our perspective on Amazon is that Amazon has a plan to be an online pharmacy. And they want to deliver all of your meds to your home and likely are looking at cannabis as no different. When there are therapies like more epidiolexes on the market, right, they want to be the pathway for getting that into consumers' hands. Now, it, that is goes back to what we were talking about, Tyler, right? Like that is one specific agenda that doesn't necessarily coincide or, or align with everybody's agenda across the space. 
And I think it's interesting to hear you talk about from the banking perspective. I mean, I remember a couple of years ago when you and I first probably first met, we were talking about how dispensaries were having to pay a premium to open a bank account. And now here we are just maybe even not even two years later, and they're the, the business is being banked and, and it's competitive now in the, in the complete opposite direction. I want to talk a little bit about, so we've got this opaque landscape from a regulatory standpoint. We have different agendas and different strategies as it relates to lobbying and informing regulations, and they're not always aligned with advocacy versus different business objectives. Let's talk about the people. We've seen, and I'd love to hear your take coming out of the conference again this year, and I know it's something that you and I have talked extensively about, and I'm trying to bait you again, Tyler. I'm not going to keep giving you softballs. We're trying to get into yeah. <laughs> going for the jugular. Yeah, right. I got a cutter that's going to fall off the plate on you. We got to jump in and, and and talk about from our standpoint. I think we've we have almost celebritized a number of founders and CEOs and people in this space that that aren't that aren't even around anymore, right? Let alone actually kind of still in those seats. So the there was the MedMen stuff. There's obviously a number of different companies where you look at, could you have known otherwise, like these were operators that were ahead of their skis? Or what do you see now happening when some of that dust is settled? So it brings me back to a saying that I'll never forget. And it's, it's don't confuse brains for a bull market, right? And I think that so many companies ran out, made awful decisions. And candidly from, from, and again, not, I've, I've been in a different seat. So I, I've been able to see maybe things that that most don't, but yeah, sitting back watching it, it was head scratcher after head scratcher. And again, even today I see CEOs of major companies making statements and I just sit back in my chair like, guys, no, none of that's accurate. It's an awful plan. It's never going to work. And you're saying that sitting behind a desk that's, that's paying you tens of millions of dollars a year. I mean, it, it blows me away. And then from, from an industry perspective, as Ross and, and, and speaking about the U.S. specifically, no two markets are alike. Yeah. Right. They're just not. And it, it's whether it's regulatory regime, licensing model, the players, the backstory. And it's it's I, I was trying to think for years of how to describe the industry. And it kind of reminds me of a Star Wars bar. Yeah. That's why we call it an economy, not an industry. Right. Yeah, it's really easy to fall into to pitfalls. And unfortunately, it's, it's, it also goes back to the point, Ross, where I think I see a lot of these companies targeting CPG execs. They say, oh, well, this person's been in CPG for 10 years. Perfect fit. Well, you bring those execs in and they be, may be savvy in the CPG world. And that's great. But it's going to take them 18 to 24 months to really understand the dynamic in this space. And by that time, it's too late. And so again, I sit back and I see these hires and I see these people being brought in and the hoopla and, and, and I just, it blows me away. And it, it, the thing that, that has been, I think, most frustrating, and it's, it's been a benefit for the MSOs that are savvy because they're taking advantage of it, but the industry doesn't seem to learn from mistakes. They just keep making the same ones over and the bigger the company, the worse they are. So it's going to be interesting to see how that stuff plays out, but yeah, it's been quite a ride. So what can you tell us, Tyler, about what you see in the cannabis economy that is working well? I think the limited license markets are working well. It, it may not be ideal. It may be cumbersome. They're all a little different. I, I, I still like that model. I think it's safe. I think that I think in those markets, there's so much oversight on the licensees that it, it 
prohibits things from really going wrong on a grand scale. I look at markets like Oklahoma and they, they scare me to death. You've got an unlimited license market. I think they've issued a, a license for every 93 patients on every corner. And it's a giant sprint to the bottom. And unfortunately, when you've got a market like that, one, it's hard to monitor. Two, when people don't have the ability to, to really make money steadily and they've got massive competition, they start cutting corners and doing things that don't benefit anybody. And that stuff scares me. That may be contrarian to what a lot of people say in the industry, but I do like the limited license markets. So we're very comfortable with contrarian views. It's very much our DNA in our shop and how we look at deploying capital. I want to piggyback off of just the perspective that you were sharing on the Safe Banking Act, Tyler, which is let's temper expectations and understand really what it means. Our perspective is it's important and it shows good momentum, but it's not forcing anybody to bank companies, right? So it, it feels largely almost administrative after the fact to kind of button up how the, how the sector is already operating. And so to the entrepreneurs that are out there that are listening to this, a lot of our you know, audiences looking to raise capital and they're starting their own businesses and, and we're super excited about that and want to give them some perspectives, especially at an early stage. I mean, you don't have enough capital, you don't have enough time and you don't have enough information. What advice would you have for entrepreneurs that are exploring pathways into the cannabis markets? Now, given the limited information, how should they think about making decisions as it relates to things like Safe Banking Act or ultimate federal legalization? I think they've got to find accurate sources of information, which are not always easy to come by. And I think also, I just, I, I spoke in ancillary opportunities and in, in companies at, at MJ BizCon and, and what I've seen successful people do is they either come from an outside industry and they see a gap that they know how to solve, right? Even if it is cannabis. And, and I think Ross Lipson with Dutchie is a perfect example of that, what he's been able to do. Or it's somebody that's in the industry and maybe goes down a path and pivots. I see a lot of those companies have a lot of success. And then I, I also, I have a lot of respect for people that dive in. And they, they learn the industry before they come up with a plan of how they want to attack it. I think those three scenarios are probably the ones that typically have success. But I, yeah, it's tough. It's really tough. I'm not going to sit here and say that there's this wealth of information out there because you got to remember the people that are dominating the industry or having success, they don't want to share their special sauce, right? And so a lot of times they're not forthcoming or they just don't, they don't want to encourage competition. And I hate to say that, but it's reality. Yeah, it's tough to get behind the competition is good mantra. Everybody says it. We say it and the entrepreneurs say it. But obviously, everybody wants to you know, control their own destiny, right? And, and that feels a lot like dominating certain regions, dominating certain ownership of licenses, et cetera. As you were talking about, that's kind of playing out on a really large scale. What are some of the things at an earlier stage or ancillary or less license-driven are you seeing any really exciting innovations out there that were, and it could be maybe around, because I know you guys are very involved in all the processing of banking and fintech, that are you seeing some innovations being developed there as opposed to just adapting incumbent technology from other sectors? I am. I think that there's been a little bit of a race on the payment side, hmm. but even then, folks that come in on the payment side outside of the industry don't understand it. And, and so everybody's kind of trying to create their moat on the payment side and try and figure out a way to, to conquer it. But I think that 
a lot of those people believe that safe is the catalyst for mainstream payments to come in. And again, I just don't see that happening, at least not anytime soon. So it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. I think there's still a huge opportunity on the lending side. And, and I've seen more and more banks and credit unions come to the table to try and offer aggressive products. And then I'm seeing some, some folks that have had success in mainstream industry on the lending side take a really unique approach. And I think we're going to see some products come out in the next three to six months that will really benefit the industry because that's been a, a real challenge. So, so yeah, those are, those are a couple of areas where I, th- I think there's opportunity for sure. And then I still, I'm a big believer, again, there are new markets launching, Alabama's launching, Georgia issued their licensure, limited license markets, I think from, a, from an investor perspective are a really uh, nice place to be. So for those of us, for those listeners out there who may not know enough or, or a lot about Hyper, I mean, one of the things I've always admired about your firm and your knowledge and, and your, your presence is really just long-term focus. And maybe you could just talk a little bit about like, what are some of the things that you're focused on? If listeners want to find more information, where do they find you? What sort of resources that are out there? Maybe a good book to read? I don't know, something like that. <laughs> Cannabis Capital? Oh, like oh, oh, you mean the one you contributed to, Tyler? Oh, yeah. Aimless. Well, Tyler, um, But that case in point, Ross, the world has changed so dramatically since that time. And it wasn't that long ago, really. So from a hyper standpoint, we're a technology provider for banks and credit unions. And, and that's a very complex beast, right? Compliance is, it's the business that everybody in cannabis is in, whether they realize it or not. But for banks and credit unions, even more so. And so we, we kind of live in a fishbowl. And we knew that that to solve the payment problem, we had to solve the banking problem first. And so we've been fortunate to have a lot of success on the compliance side. We had some initial payment products that launched that have done fairly well. And we're transitioning into a, a new payment product that we think is going to make a big impact on the space. So I would say long-term, we're a payment company, but we had to really lay the foundation to get to where we are. I mean, I'm thankful for that because again, I would like to think that we've had a pretty big impact on the banking climate, whether people realize that or not behind the scenes. And even if it's not things directly related to what Hyper is doing or institutions, I mean, people have to realize that regulators have had to learn just like everybody else. They've had no guidance. And so they need actionable information from the industry as well. They need to know what's going on. And so in some cases, we've been kind of a weird intermediary, so to speak, in certain situations. So it's it's been great. And we're just excited for, for the future. It's interesting, Tyler, to look back over the last few years because there were certainly other businesses that wanted to tackle the problems that you guys focused on. But you stand alone in the market now as the gold standard from our perspective anyway, and certainly from, I think, the the, the presence. And I think it's largely been a symptom of what I said earlier. It's obviously staying focused, but having the foresight to get in front of working with all the different different groups that, that have different incentives at times. And certainly, I think what you guys have done to establish the gold standard is, is, is extraordinary. And, and looking forward from here, as other states come online, it must be just tremendous opportunity for you guys at, at Hyper. It absolutely is, Ross. And, and to that point, we've also done well by learning the hard way, mm. right? I mean, again, at the beginning, Banks didn't really understand how to bank it. Regulators had no guidance on how to examine an institution. We as a technology provider thought we were providing a solution when really in a lot of cases there were deficiencies. And so I would say that our business model became more defendable over the years by going through those hard times. I think it's important for anybody getting into this space to understand that this is not like any other industry. 
you're going to have to pivot most likely and you're going to you're going to take some hits and you just have to stay laser focused on the goal you will get there things can be very noisy in this industry more so than most everybody knows each other everybody's trying to pay attention to what the other one's doing and so keep the blinders on embrace failure and and that failure in many cases is going to make your business model more defendable long term well, I think that's pretty good advice to end on today. Tyler, many thanks for joining us. Ross, thank you as always for leading a great discussion. Listeners, there was a pretty in-depth conversation today. Details from this interview can be found in the show notes. So if you want to do a little jog on what an MSO is, that sort of thing, please visit the show notes. And remember, if you have a cannabis economy challenge, please visit CannabisCapitalPodcast.com. And you can find us next Thursday with a new episode of Cannabis Capital, the podcast. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey there, my name is Leah Babrudi, and I'm the founder and host of Canachicks Podcast, where I discuss cannabis, psychedelics, and other natural medicines. I not only interview people who use them as treatment for different conditions, but also the entrepreneurs who share their knowledge on how they built their businesses. If this sounds interesting to you, give my show a listen. I'm sure you'll learn something that'll surprise you.